0: More people every day are ditching animal products, embracing plant-based foods, and speaking up for what matters. With my experience as an international instructor for vegan nutrition and an award-winning author, I interview experts, innovators, and celebrities about the global movement towards a plant-based future. Do you wanna learn how to combat the injustice in our food system affecting your health, the animals, and the planet? Well, you're in the right place. It all starts here with eating like you give a damn. Welcome to the eating like you give a damn podcast, the place to discover your passion for plant-based living one bite at a time. I'm your host, Stephanie Harder. And do I have an episode for you to sink your teeth into. My guest is both loved and and feared by many all over the world for his 40-plus years of marine animal and ocean conservation activism. I get to have some one-on-one time with Captain Paul Watson, esteemed founder, president, and executive director of the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. Captain Paul has served as master and commander on seven different Sea Shepherd ships since 1978, and continues to lead their campaigns. Alongside his crew, he has starred in seven seasons of Animal Planet's television series, Whale Wars, and he's received many awards and commendations over the years for his conservation and animal rights activism. Sea Shepherd, which Captain Paul founded in 1977, protects our oceans and marine wildlife by stopping those who destroy species and ecosystems. The organization is more than just a nonprofit. They are a global movement with the vessels, the volunteers, and the passion to defend our seas like no other organization can. They are the largest private navy in the world to take action on atrocities many of us aren't even aware that are going on in the world, putting themselves on the front lines in the war against poaching. Sea Shepherd does so much in service of our seas, such as removing killer nets, conducting vital marine research, cleaning beaches, patrolling waters, as well as taking aggressive, nonviolent action against anyone threatening the fragile balance of our ocean's ecosystem. Hundreds of thousands of marine animals, some of them already endangered, are targeted and trapped by poachers each year. The sustainability of the planet is at risk too. With so much at stake, Sea Shepherd is unrelenting in protecting the seas and stopping those who destroy habitats and marine life. In this interview with founder Captain Paul, we talk about why Paul decided to part ways with Greenpeace and set up an interventionist organization to go after poachers in our oceans How he landed the show Whale Wars on cable television, which ran from 2008 to 2015, and you'll be amazed to hear the incredible and historical victory for whales as a result of that. The truth about sustainably sourced, wild-caught, dolphin-safe fish, and whether or not farm fish is a better alternative. And we also get to hear about the politics of species extinction, the media's response to Paul's aggressive tactics as an activist, and his firsthand experience seeing the demand for vegan food around the world today. And if you get jazzed and want to join the Sea Shepherd movement and support this heroic cause, he gives us a glimpse into volunteer life too. With that let's go ahead and jump in the deep end and get real about eating like you give a damn for our oceans. Here's the interview with Captain Paul Watson. So I'm really excited to welcome Captain Paul Watson to the show with Sea Shepherd. Captain Paul, how's it going?
1: Oh, Wonderful. Thank you.
0: Yeah, great. It's so exciting to have you here. I mean, the uh, amount of Transformation that you you know you've been working on for decades to instill in the world right now as it goes to um, ocean conservation, wildlife conservation is incredibly inspiring. So I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. So let's go ahead and start just from the beginning because I know listeners are probably curious to know your background, where you're from, what your family life was like when you were growing up, and then what was this moment that you had where you realized that this, this is a calling for you to pursue?
1: I was raised in a fishing village in uh, eastern Canada, and uh, uh, when I was 10 years old, I spent the summer swimming with a family of beavers, and uh the next uh year when i was 11 i went back to that pond and couldn't find any of the beavers and found out that trappers had taken them all and i got really angry so that that winter i began to walk the trap lines and free the animals and destroy the traps so that's where i sort of started as a wildlife activist at that, at that time and then when in 1969 i was the youngest founding member of the greenpeace foundation and uh, been doing this Ever since I established Sea um, uh, Shepherd in 1977, so we've been doing what we're doing now for about 42 years.
0: Wow, that's incredible! And you know, I was catching up, watching some of uh, some of your talks online, like your TEDx speeches and some interviews that you've given before. And I know that there was like a particular moment that you had when you were when you were out doing your work that changed your life. Something that happened in 1975 with a sperm whale. Can you tell us that story?
1: We had come up with this idea to protect whales by putting our bodies between the harpoons and the whales you know we were reading a lot of gandhi at the time and we thought that that was going to work and uh, in june of 75 uh, robert hunter and i found ourselves in a small little inflatable boat in front of a, a soviet harpoon vessel that was bearing down full speed on eight uh, sperm whales and every time the uh, harpooner tried to get a shot i would block his uh, aim and then the captain on the uh, the soviet vessel came running down the catwalk and screamed into the ear of the uh, harpooner, and then turned, smiled, and brought his finger across his throat. And that's when I realized that Gandhi wasn't going to work for us that day. And a few moments later, there's this horrendous uh, explosion, and the harpoon went over our head, hit a female in the pod of sperm whales. And the largest whale in the pod, this this bull sperm whale, suddenly slapped the water with his tail and dove. And he dove right underneath of us and threw himself at the bow of the harpoon vessel. And uh, they were ready for him and had an unattached harpoon. And hit him at point-blank range in the head, and he fell back and rolling in, in agony on the surface, blood everywhere, and as he did, I caught his eye, and I, and he. And then I saw a trail of blood, bloody bubbles coming underwater straight towards us, and he came up and out of the water at an angle so that the next uh, move would be to fall right on top of us, and as his head came up out of the water, and I, I looked into his eye, this eye the size of my fist, I mean, it was so close I could see my own reflection in the eye. What I saw there was really a life-changing experience for me because what I saw was understanding that the whale understood what we were trying to do. And I could see the effort that he could make to pull himself back and his head began to slip beneath the surface and, and he died. And So he could have taken my life. And instead, um, you, know, he, you know, it was really just a moment that, uh, that changed my life because as I sat there, I began to say, I think, what are we killing these whales for? Why are the Soviets doing that? You can't eat whale meat. Uh, they kill them for oil, especially for spermaceti oil, which is used for high heat-resistant uh, lubricating for injuring engines. And one of the things that it was most in demand for was for lubricating intercontinental ballistic missiles. So I said to myself, here we are, you know, destroying this incredibly intelligent, beautiful, self-aware sentient being for the purpose of making a weapon meant for the mass extermination of human beings. And that's when it, it struck me, you know, we're, we're insane. And from that moment on, I said, I'm going to do what I do for them and not for us. So that's wow. why I don't really care what people think about our tactics, which I think are very uh, restrained. Uh, we've never injured anybody in our history, but I call what we do aggressive nonviolence.
0: Mm-hmm. And it seems to be incredibly effective as it's proven over the decades. But I know that um, in the beginning of this episode, I introduced you in a little bit of a bio, but tell the listeners in your own words, like what is Sea Shepherd all about? You know, since you've had that pivotal moment, what is it that you are setting out to accomplish?
1: I left Greenpeace because it was uh, mainly a a protest organization. And I always found protesting to be very submissive. It's like, please, please, please don't kill the whales, and they do it anyway, and all you do is hang a banner or take their pictures. So uh, I set Sea Shepherd up as an interventionist organization to intervene directly uh, against illegal activities, uh, you know, poachers, and uh, to be aggressive, but at the same time to not injure anybody and to shut them down physically, and that's what we've been doing for 42 years.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. And I know that you've caught, like, you know, over the years, a lot of flack in the media about that. You know, you've been called several names, you know, uh, pirates, eco-terrorists. You've, you've received a lot of criticism for this. But what do you think that the media seems to be missing when they're putting this information out there for the masses when, when really, you know, you're coming from a good place? You have a big heart, obviously. You're utilizing your resources and the tools and the people that you have to do something really great that seems to be out of sight and out of mind. So what, what's your reaction to all of that, the way that the media is all the, doing all this name-calling and creating this fear about what's going on with you?
1: Well, you know, when people call me an eco-terrorist, I just simply say I never worked for Monsanto, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, so they, they're always changing the language around. But, you know, I was a, uh, my major in university was communications, so I understand the how the media works. And uh, that's one of the reasons we've been successful is because we're able to understand just exactly how to push the right buttons to get our story across. But you have to expect that kind of uh, response. Uh, the media tends to be mostly, media tends to be owned by the same corporations that are responsible for screwing up the planet. So uh, certain things you know, I, this thing that they call fake news, I, I call it the real problem is no news. You know, you don't hear anything about Fukushima anymore, even though it's dumping 500 tons of radioactive water into the into the ocean every day. Mm-hmm. You don't hear much about standing rock. You don't hear about environmental issues. The fact that over uh, 1,200 uh, environmentalists have been murdered over the last decade. Nobody ever hears about it. So really, the problem is is no news in the mainstream media. Our opponents were calling us pirates and, uh, at the time. And I said, oh, well, OK, if you want us to be pirates, uh we'll be pirates we don't have any problem with that and so we got our own jolly roger and everything and it actually works to our advantage we scare the hell out of these people when um, when we approach them and um you know many many years ago i had a tibetan buddhist monk who came to the ship and he gave me a little statue and he said, I've been asked to give this to you. And I didn't think anything of it. I just put it up on the ship. And then about oh, I think it was four years later, I had the opportunity to meet with the Dalai Lama and I had a pitch I had a picture of this and I said, What exactly is this? And he said, Um, I found out that he gave it to me or you know, he had sent it. And I said, What is it? And he said, It's called Hayagriva. And I said, What's that? And he says, That's a symbol for the divine aspect of the of the wrath of the Buddha. And I said, well, what does that mean? He said, well, you never want to hurt anybody. But sometimes when they cannot see enlightenment, scare the hell out of them until they do. (laughs) So he understood that was what our
0: approach. That's so incredible. A a token directly from the Dalai Lama in support of your mission and what you're doing in the world.
1: Yeah. So when people say we're violent, I said, well, you know, not according to the Dalai Lama. But the problem is, is that in our society, violence is anything that is uh, directed towards property, not life. So property has more value than life. It always reminded me a few years ago, there was a a ranger in Zimbabwe, I think, who expressed the hypocrisy very well. Uh, He was being uh, criticized by human rights groups because he shot and killed a poacher who was about to kill a black rhinoceros. And he said, "I, I really don't understand what the concern is here. If I was a police officer and a man just robbed Barclays Bank in Harare. And I ran and I shot him as he was running out the door. If I shot him in the head and killed him on the spot, they'd give me a medal. And he says, mm. why is it that a bag of paper has more value than the future heritage of the nation of Zimbabwe? You know, so it really illustrates our hypocrisy is that uh, we give more value to property than than to life.
0: Which is such a sad realization of our culture right now. And I know that to help bring awareness to the masses, right? You obviously have to be seen uh, for what you're doing because what you do affects the entire world, it affects the planet, it affects our future really. I know that uh, you got to have a conversation with Discovery Channel and you were able to work your way into a TV show. So tell us a little bit about how that all transpired.
1: Uh, Well, Back in 2006, I went to all of the networks to try and sell this uh, idea for a show and uh i went and i said you know look uh, the biggest show right now on discovery is um is a bunch of guys that go into a remote area and uh catch crabs i said i can give you men and women go into a far more remote area colder area to save whales it has to be more compelling than catching crabs every week and so animal planet went with it and we did seven seasons it was always under a lot of uh, pressure especially from japan and uh, finally they shut it down but it served its purpose because um, it brought that message to people were around the world. And uh, this year, uh, Japan has uh, retreated from the Southern Ocean and will not be returning. So the Southern Ocean Whale Sanctuary is now completely protected, and wow. it cost them over a hundred million dollars, you know, in losses. And that's one, of the th- that's one of the things that contributed to the demise of this uh, industry is, uh, you know, we cut into the profits. Every year, we got them down to 30 percent and in one year down to only 10 percent of, of their quota. So we saved about 6,500 whales in total. So that was that was wow. pretty successful.
0: That is an incredible achievement.
1: That was very uh, helpful that we had that uh, television show to do it. Now we're doing a lot of uh, documentaries like Sea of Shadow about protecting the, the Vaquita and the Sea of Cortez, uh, Chasing the Thunder, the Longest Pursuit of a Poacher in Maritime History, the 110-day pursuit of the of the Toothfish Poacher um, Thunder uh, from the coast of Antarctica to west coast of Africa. There's a film just being made about me by Leslie Chilcott, uh, just finished this. It'll be a release soon called Watson, But and she was the woman who did Inconvenient Truth with with uh, Al Gore. Uh, so we're doing a lot of documentaries now. We just finished one in, uh, in Australia on uh, cleaning up the remote beaches of Australia of plastic. And, uh, you know, I've always felt and always said that the camera is the most powerful weapon that's ever been invented. And, um, you know, so if, it, if, it was, if it's not on camera, it didn't happen for all intents and purposes
0: right that's incredible now um you know, you mentioned japan earlier with that incredible success as far as uh the the whaling is concerned now i know that several years back i'd watched the film the cove and uh I didn't have you know dry eyes through the entire film as as it really depicted and and shown you know the truth about what happens with the dolphins mm-hmm. off of the coast of japan because the dolphins are seen as competition for the fishing industry. Now, is there is there anything that you're doing to work on with, with that particular situation with the dolphins, or is that a little bit more difficult than protecting the whales?
1: We've been working on that since 2003. I think we were the first to expose it at the time. The problem is, is that we've uh, un, been unable to continue the campaign because anybody who has been to Taiji, Japan for Sea Shepherd is now denied entry into Japan. So we simply ran out of campaign leaders that can't get into the country. Uh, we continue to oppose it, uh, but we're more actively involved with us trying to stop the pilot whale and dolphin slaughter in uh, the Danish Faroe Islands, which in my opinion is probably even worse. Oh, wow. And so we made a lot of progress there. Uh, we have crew there right now who are who are trying to intervene. Uh, again, they tried to do what Japan does. Our ships are banned from Faroese waters. They try to make it illegal to even wear a Sea Shepherd T-shirt in, in the Faroe Islands. Uh, but we're constantly just keep the pressure on, um, you know, putting in, uh, pressure on the cruise ship industry to not go there, on Faroe's products, uh, just keeping exposing the atrocities that are going on there. There's no reason in this day and age to be doing what they're doing. The Faroes have the highest standard of living uh, per capita on the planet. They say, well, we do it because, well, you know, for subsistence, we need the meat, which is just total uh a lie. I mean, you go to a supermarket in the Faroes, you can get anything in there that you can get in the uh, in the uh, in Copenhagen. In fact, an island mm-hmm. that has more sheep than people. You go into the supermarket, and they're selling lamb from New Zealand you know, so they're certainly not going without impacting and they and they said, Well, you expect us to eat vegetables, where are we gonna get them? Well again, you go into the supermarket and get anything from pineapples to peas to whatever. Uh anything you can get in Europe you can get in there. So that's not it's a totally bogus argument that they, they need it for subsistence. And the other thing is that the meat that they're eating is uh heavily contaminated with uh, heavy metals including methylmercury. You know, if this was in any other kind of meat, the health department would shut it down. But for some reason they allow this uh, to be eaten, especially from children, which I look at as a form of child abuse, to force children to eat meat that's contaminated with uh, with methylmercury. Sure. But, you know, all over the world, though, people get entrenched in these traditions, whether it be fox hunting, bullfighting, or whatever, and then they tend to justify it. And My position is that any, any tradition that involves blood and sacrifice and death needs to be abolished. It has no place in the 21st century. I don't care what you know how how old it's been, and uh, we just you know if we're going to evolve as a as a species, we have to move away from that kind of barbarous sort of attitude.
0: Sure, it's really refreshing to see somebody like you who has had so much experience traveling the entire world, seeing so many different cultures, seeing so many different countries, and still in the end say, "Look, we need to abolish this act of slaughtering animals and and." basically pillaging our planet for our survival and because, you know, and because it's wrong.
1: And one thing that bothers me about the vegan movement is whenever we do anything, uh, somebody said, we're, you're, we're protecting dolphins. Well, what about the cows? Well, yeah, but you do something about the cows, but we all can't do everything. And so every time exactly. we're doing something, we have a group that's doing something else condemning us from what we're doing. And so we don't go uh, and, and do that. I mean, we contributed to the film Cowspiracy, and uh, now we're working on a film called Sea Spiracy, and there are connections. For instance, 40% of all of the uh, the fish taken out of the ocean is fed to domestic salmon, to chickens, and, and to pigs, and to fur, fur-buried animals. The, the All of this stuff is connected, and we got, try to get involved. But we do focus, and when we focus, I, I don't think that it's right that people should criticize us for doing this and not doing that. And that's one of the big problems, I think, with the in the vegan movement. It's sort of this a lot of competition and uh, competitive, what I call competitive purism. Like, you know, I'm more pure as a vegan than you are. Or, um, you know, I call a lot of these people veggie Jesuits, you know, and just do your thing. Like, for instance, right now, there's a big, big debate over the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Burger. And is it vegan or is it not vegan? I don't care. All I know is that every Beyond Burger and Possible Burger bought is one last meat burger sold, and that is good. Right. That's a good thing. And if vegans don't think it's vegan, then the answer is don't eat it. Just like, you know, I yes. think it's meant for more for for the meat eaters and then, then for, 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 for vegans in that respect. We have to replace mm-hmm. meat products with plant-based products. And I actually find it very funny when vegans are saying, well, that's just a plant-based uh, diet. It's not really vegan. I said, I don't care. Neither does the cow or the chicken.
0: Right, exactly. And and that's great hearing that from a big picture perspective. Right, because because uh, we, we can we can tend to follow this sort of tunnel vision. We focus in on one particular problem or one particular thing, and we lose focus about what's what's going on, the bigger impact of our choices. And uh, and that's definitely what this show's all about. So that's perfect. It's it's about educating ourselves to make more informed choices. And of course, we're called eating like you give a damn. So tell us your thoughts. About the fishing industry as it relates to how consumers can better determine if, uh, if they want to consume some fish every once in a while. I know a lot of people talk about, you know, well, if it's sustainable, if it's wild caught, um, if it's dolphin safe, it should be fine every once in a while, right? What are your thoughts about that?
1: Well, first, there are no sustainable fisheries, the oceans are dying. There's 10 million fishing boats out there, four million of them are illegal, and it's every day, nonstop, 24 hours, taking, 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 and there's no replacement. The fish simply cannot keep up with the demand that we put on them. And so one fishery after another collapses and is replaced by another one. Uh, And people adapt to that diminishment. For instance, uh, turbot. Nobody ate turbot in the 70s or the 60s or 70s, but now that's that's the fish you get on a restaurant in Paris or New York. Because we've adopted to that diminishment because we've lost much of the cod. We've, uh, like for instance, the orange ruffie was a fish that was sold in the 90s and Trader Joe's and everywhere and you don't see it anymore. Why? Because this is a fish that takes 45 years to become sexually mature and lives to be 200 years old. It can't keep up with that kind of demand that we put on it. Mm. So by 2048, according to Dr. Daniel Polly and Dr. Boris Worm, who are the two foremost fisheries biologists on the planet, There'll be no fishing industry because there won't be any fish. Uh, I think they're being actually optimistic when they say 2048. We've already reduced uh, fish populations by 90% with most species. And uh, many of them are facing, you know, extinction. But here's what we're dealing with. The politics, I call it, of extinction and the economics of extinction. There's money to be made by driving species extinct. Like, for instance, bluefin tuna. Mitsubishi right now has enough bluefin tuna in refrigerated warehouses in Japan to supply their market for the next 10 to 15 years. So they could stop fishing right now and not lose anything. Except the reason they won't do that is that if they do it, the fish in the ocean will begin to increase. And if their numbers increase, the value of the fish in their warehouses goes down. So supply and demand. And if it goes extinct, now they have a priceless commodity. And all of these fishing industries today are not really fishing industries, just short-term investment for short-term gain. Mitsubishi started with weapons and cars and everything and it goes into fishing or going into something else. It's just a stepping stone for profit. So um, th- that's the real problem, I think, is this uh, human uh, activity of, of economics, the economics of extinction, making money at the expense of wild nature. And unfortunately, we're all in denial about the uh, the the interconnectedness of, of all things, that all these species are interconnected. Um, I like to tell people, well, it's like a spaceship. And when you're on a spaceship, you have a life support system. And that life support system provides the air we breathe, the food we eat, regulates time and climate and temperature. And that life support system is run by a crew, a crew of Earthlings. And those crew are not us. We're the passengers on spaceship Earth having a great time amusing ourselves. But what we are doing is killing off the crew. We've had a forty percent diminishment in phytoplankton population since 1950, and that provides 70% of our of the oxygen that we breathe. So, you know, if we lose bees and trees and worms and phytoplankton, we die. We don't survive. And uh so there's there's only so many crew you can kill before the machinery begins to break down. A few years ago I was criticized on the Pox Network because I said trees and bees and worms were more important than 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 people. And they said, how could you say something so outrageous like that? And I said, well, because they're more important than people. Because if they go extinct, if we lose them, we die. But if we die, it doesn't affect them at all. They don't need us. We need them. And that makes them ecologically far more important than we are. But what happens is that many, many years ago, we moved from a biocentric point of view, where we were part of nature part of everything, interconnected, and we lived in accordance with the three basic laws of ecology, diversity, interdependence, and understanding uh, that there are finite resources, a limit to carrying capacity. And uh, we've moved away away from that, so that uh, we developed this thing called anthropocentrism, that we're better than nature, we're apart from nature. And then we created all these uh, fantasies, these illusions that we live in to justify what we do. People call those religions, but I, any any fantasy that puts human beings at the top of everything and says we're better than everything, we're a part of everything, is unacceptable to me. So that's one of the reasons I'm working on developing a church, a church of biocentrism, because people like churches. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, so to to get back to that biocentric uh, attitude that we're we're a part of everything.
0: Yeah! Wow, that is so incredible and inspiring because of the tactics that uh that you guys have used uh sea shepherd with when you're out on a mission on your ships or when you have your fleet out there you you risk so much right and you put your lives you put your livelihoods really on the line to protect these ocean animals and I know that you probably have, I mean, you have probably a million stories that you could share, but does any particular story maybe stand out that maybe is one of your favorite that you like to share with people?
1: Well, what we do out there is risky uh, and there are, uh, you know, I'm criticized because you say you're asking young people to risk their life to protect a whale and how do you justify that? I said, well, in our society, we ask young people to die and to kill over real estate or flags or oil wells. Uh, i think it's a far more noble thing to risk your life to protect an endangered species or a threatened habitat and uh, those risks are, are real but at the same time in 42 years we've never lost anybody and we've never uh, injured anybody and we've never been convicted of a felony anywhere in the world uh, we operate within the bounds of the law and of practicality so uh what we're the real threat of sea shepherd is to is the fact that we're shutting down these things which, which are mainly illegal but they're backed up by a lot of by a lot of money but i really can't say that you know this is more campaigns more dangerous than the other uh, right now our most dangerous campaign is the malagro campaign in the sea of cortez where we have molotov cocktails thrown at our ships and we're shot at and our drones are shot down and we're we're threatened because there we're dealing with the cartel the same people who move cocaine are moving toto Ava bladders wow the toto Alba bladder bladders worth two is worth a hundred thousand dollars per kilo on the black market
0: what do they use those for?
1: Oh, some voodoo Chinese medicines, <laughs> you know, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But in uh, and the, and the vaquita, the bycatch of the Totoaba fishery, they take this four to five foot long fish, the totoaba, just take the swim bladder and throw the rest away.
0: Mm. Wow, that's insane. I know that you have also spent some time in prison, several prisons around the world, if I understand correctly. Mm-hmm. And this is something else that you're willing, you're willing to risk, so tell me a little bit about like, you know, what's going through these, the minds of the people that capture you, they imprison you for certain acts that you've done in your activism?
1: Well, I've never been convicted of, uh, of a crime. I have been arrested numerous times and we've won every time mm-hmm. in the courts. Uh, so that's just something you have to, uh, to deal with. You know, I was once, give, uh, I was actually once paid to give a lecture at the FBI Academy in Quantico. And uh, the FBI agent there said, well, you know, C. Shepherd's walking a pretty fine line when it comes to the law. And I said, does it really matter how fine the line is as long as you don't cross the line? And we don't cross that line. Mm. But, uh, you know, when you put yourself into these positions, you get arrested. But uh, like I said, we, we, we win in the courts if we, if we don't win on the, on the ground because we're very, very careful to make sure that we operate in accordance to the law, to uphold the law. We operate in accordance with the United Nations World Charter for Nature, which states that any state, any organization, any individual is empowered to uphold international conservation law, especially in areas outside of national jurisdiction. And I've used that in the defense as a defense in court cases and uh, successfully. And uh, so, again, we have to be very practical on everything that we do, very cautious on what we do. And um, and for that reason, that's, after, that's why after 42 years, we have an unblemished record.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Now, where do you see the future of Sea Shepherd heading? Because we we hear where you started from. We see where you are now. What does the future look like?
1: Well, Sea Shepherd right now is where I have always wanted to be. It's not an organization. It's an international movement. We're in 42 different countries. They're all separate entities. Because I realized that, you know, you can stop an individual. You can shut down an organization, but you can't stop a movement. And so this movement that we've created, uh, I have no control over it. Uh, it's, it's a decentralized movement, and uh, right now we have a dozen campaigns going on at any given time. I got a, There's a crew on the island of Mayotte protecting sea turtles, another in Nicaragua protecting sea turtles. Uh, there's a crew protecting salmon on the west coast of Canada, uh, stopping poachers on both the east and west coasts of Africa stopping poachers in the Mediterranean. We're looking at doing a mangrove planting uh, campaign in the Caribbean. And uh, we just came back from stopping Iceland from killing whales. Not a single whale was killed in Iceland this summer. And uh, so all over the globe, that can only be possible with a, a decentralized uh, operation because you know one person or one group of people is very difficult to, to manage and coordinate uh, these kind of operations.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. And I know that I've seen footage of you also interjecting where the clubbing of seals is happening. Where where does that happen? Why does it happen? What's going on with the seals too?
1: That has been a, a long-term campaign. We've been successful on, and then it starts up again. We shut it down in 85, It came back on 95. Uh, we managed to get the seal products banned in Europe and all over. A lot of confrontations. A lot of things have happened over the years. The problem right now is that although it's the highest quota ever on any marine mammal product of 450,000, that's the government just being, you know, uh, arrogant about the whole thing because there's no market for the pelts. So the kill of about 40,000, 45,000 every year instead of 450,000. And the reason that we're not directly involved in it right now is because the Canadian government and the sealers would like nothing better than for us to be involved in it right now because it's a dying industry. And if we got involved, it would ignite all those passions again and nationalism and, you know, nobody's going to tell us what to do and everything. So right now we're just standing back and just seeing if this industry is going to die on its own. Because it only exists Mm. because of massive Canadian government subsidies up to $20 million a year. And... uh, They're gonna get tired of that. The same with whaling. For the first time ever, there's no whaling in pelagic waters. Uh, Japan is uh, withdrawn from the Southern Ocean. All whaling today is restricted to the territorial waters of the whaling nations. Norway's number one now, not Japan. Japan's number two, Iceland's number three, Denmark's number four. And uh, so although we continue to oppose them, You know, what we've seen this year is a terrific victory, you know, moving, there's no, no, in the first time in our history of whaling, there's been no whaling in the southern hemisphere at all. And now no whaling in outside of territorial waters. And that's an amazing achievement. And the media can't get it right. This Japan has resumed commercial whaling. What are you going to do about it? I said, well, first of all, they never stopped. They just called it something else. Mm -hmm. But you got to look at the positive side. They're not doing it in the Southern Ocean. They've retreated to their own territorial waters, doing what they've done last year and 20 years before that. So yes, we have to move to try and stop them. But uh, we're going to focus on the positive. And the positive is that we're making progress.
0: Yes, yes. And the fact that you're making progress, too. What do you see um, that might be coming up as what you would consider your next biggest win?
1: Oh, I I don't know if we really look at things that winds or whatever. We You know, every time we can stop a poaching operation, we're... Well, for instance, Africa, we've arrested 34 poaching vessels, arrested and seized them. But the big victory is the fact that we're now a deterrent, and uh, the poachers are staying out of those waters because they know we're there. And uh, Mm. so... Trying to protect, uh, and, and, and the countries, the African countries that work with us, asked us to come in and do this because they don't have the resources. We're the largest non-government navy in the world, and our navy's bigger than the, the navies of some twenty-five other countries. Wow! You know they, and they give us what we need. They need resources. We need authority, and they give us that authority.
0: And when you're talking about you know you guys being the navy, I, I see you battling for the animals and battling for conservation. So in that sense, like it's, it's definitely a Navy that, that is super admirable and in, in what you're fighting for. And I know that a lot of listeners feel like they have their own battles here on shore within their own friends and their own family, as they learn more and grow more into this way of living where they're excluding animals and animal products from their diet because of all of the information that they're learning now. So you know, based on your experience, maybe with your own family, um, do you have any, any suggestions or any advice that you can offer with, you know, when, when friends and family members don't really see eye to eye with the way that you're making adjustments or the way that you live? Um, how do you deal with that?
1: Well, I think you have to live by example. I mean, veganism is a, one of the fastest growing movements in the history of of, the, of this human species. Uh, uh, it's amazing how fast it's grown. I mean back in the 70s and 80s, you know, nobody even knew what a vegan was. Uh and now, you know, it's all over uh, even in France, you know, uh, where there's vegan restaurants. Uh, and the reason for that is that uh, like any market, it's a su- it's a supply and it's a demand. I was in southern France at a a French cafe and I said, "Oh, wow, you got a A veggie burger here on the menu, and the waiter looked. Yes, we have no choice. You know, all these (laughs) all these tourists they come in, all they order is French fries. You can't make any money on that, can you? So, (laughs) so you know, it's the demand is there. That's uh, why the Beyond Burger, the Impossible Burger, and things are coming in. Uh, Things are changing, and. and that's a good thing, and so we have to look at the positive side of what is happening. But I think that uh, you, the only get you're only going to make this movement grow by setting an example. Mm-hmm. That's what we do on our ships. You know, we actually get criticized by vegans because we're not, you know, preaching veganism on our ships and we're not doing that. And I said, no, we're we're setting by example. You can join a Sea Shepherd ship. It's a vegan meals. Every meal is a vegan meal. And uh, we don't we don't preach about it. We just have people experience it. And it's a number. It's amazing how many people have left the ships and have converted to a vegan diet because they think it's either healthier. They understand the ecological uh, consequences. They under, understand the consequences to animals. But they do it without it having it shoved down their throat. And I think that turns off a lot of people. So um, you know, I think that we've literally converted hundreds and hundreds of people uh, through the experience on the ships, uh, to it. And people say, you know, we, they say, well, why are the ships vegan? And they've been vegan since 1999 and vegetarian before that. And that's because we understand the, uh, the implications, the content, the connections that, uh, Forty percent of all the fish caught out of the ocean is being fed to livestock, to to cows and pigs and chickens. And, you know, we live in a world where chickens are eating more, factory farm chickens are eating more fish than all the world's albatrosses and puffins uh, put together. Wow. So the, the meat industry is one of the major contributors to climate change, uh, to greenhouse gases. It's the uh, biggest contributor to dead zones in the ocean, biggest contributor to groundwater pollution. Uh, we kill 65 billion animals every year in slaughterhouses, and that's a major ecological problem, in addition to being grossly inhumane. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just has to be done done away with. I predict that the future, if we survive, I predict that the future would be like it's depicted in films like Star Trek, where everybody's, you know, the future in Star Trek, everybody's vegan. Right. Uh, because that's the way, it you know, the future will tend to, to bring us to an all-vegan uh, thing. And that now, of course, you know, there's all sorts of alternatives, which whether it be laboratory-grown meat or whatever. Now they're even talking about um, 3D printing of meat. <laughs> uh, right. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are against that. But uh, my position is anything that's going to replace real meat it has to be a good thing.
0: Yeah, I agree. Now, I know some people have got to be wondering about okay, so so we need to protect our oceans. We can see how okay, so maybe the sustainable wild caught thing isn't really a thing for seafood, but what about farmed fish?
1: Uh farm raised salmon is one of the the major problems in our ocean today. It's a single biggest threat to the survival of many species of indigenous Fish, indigenous salmon to orcas to bears to sea lions to eagles, it's an extremely uh, polluting industry. Uh, right? So for instance, you take if you or I were to take a piranha and put it in a, a lake anywhere in the United States, that would be a crime. It's a, if you're introducing an exotic predator into a, an ecosystem that doesn't belong, like lions fish that have been put off the coast of Florida. But here we are taking this large Atlantic predator. And putting it into a foreign environment in the pacific where it's bigger than the indigenous salmon and we put them in pens in very concentrated areas which tends to promote disease amongst the salmon and those diseases those retroviruses and the parasites that are attracted to the salmon farms then spread out to wild salmon populations, which has caused an incredible diminishment in wild salmon populations. And then in order to combat the diseases, they have chemicals. They have this one chemical to get rid of sea lice, which they literally take the salmon and put it in a bath of this chemical. And the chemical dissolves uh, the scales, the exoskeletons of insects. But that gets into the environment and dissolves these skeletons of shellfish and crabs, for instance. Wow. Uh, in fact, that t- chemical is so toxic they can't sell that fish for a year until that poison is no longer there. They have another chemical which is used in chemotherapy, uh, and that's put into the into the pens. They throw food pellets in there and see it takes about seventy fish caught from the ocean to turn into food to raise one salmon in the wild. So you're not saving wild fish by having domesticated fish. In fact, you're in, contributing to the killing of many more. The anchovies are being wiped out off of Peru and Chile in order to supply the salmon farm industry. We have uh, reason to believe that uh, in the Faroe Islands that whale meat is being fed to the salmon. We know that the Norwegians use um, whale meat to feed to uh, fur farms and most likely to salmon also. So it's, uh, there's so many levels that it's a, it's, it's a destructive, a very destructive industry they also they um they fill use growth hormones and uh and here's the other thing if you a salmon on a salmon farm doesn't have the pinkish meat that uh, a wild salmon has and they get that coloring from eating krill in the high seas it it's a dirty white meat nobody's going to buy that so they put dye into the food pellets to dye the animal's meat internally while they're still alive. Wow. I mean, the whole thing is just so gross when you when you look at it uh, to me. And, and here's the problem. Then they market it as Atlantic salmon, Norwegian salmon, Faroese salmon, Scottish salmon, but it's all farm-raised salmon as opposed to Alaskan wild-caught salmon. And if you ever go into a fish market and you see them side by side, an Alaska wild-caught salmon beside, Uh, a farm-raised salmon, you can see the difference. It is so vivid, you know, the the coloring and and the the fat, how much fatter they are, the lines of fat in the farm-raised salmon. And it's so obvious. But we don't really think about the food we eat. So in this case, uh, salmon is now everywhere. (laughs) Sushi bars Mm -hmm. everywhere. It's just a cheap sort of thing. um, But uh, there is alternatives. Of course, there's a company in Florida that's raising them on land and trying to do it in a sustainable way. But uh, again, I don't think there's any such thing as a sustainable fishery. You know, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the shaman in French uh, Polynesia had this thing called Kapu. And that is that uh, they would name an area like a bay. This area is Kapu. Any fishing in this area for the next 20 years, it's a death penalty. And people say, well, that's a little extreme. Not if you're from a people who understand that if the fish die, they died. And that conservation was a matter of survival. It wasn't a matter, you know, it wasn't something that they could do lightly. And uh, now there are no Kapu areas, no place for the fish to hide. The fishing industry, the 10 million fish out there, 10 million fishing boats out there with long lines, a hundred miles long, you know, drift nets, purse seine nets, uh, oh, it just goes on and on. The technology is just out of control and it is just clear cutting life out of the out of the ocean. You know, the, the bluefin tuna now is the most valuable animal on the planet. One bluefin tuna, the average cost is $75,000, and they can sell for over a million dollars when they're first caught. Wow. So with that kind of price tag on its head, of course, you know it's not going to survive. And there's only 10% of the original numbers left, and they're still going after
0: Wow. Well, I know that that's definitely eye-opening for a lot of people. Um, so to kind of bring that back around for listeners and kind of create some more clarity about the detriment that is caused with the fishing lines, because I know that I mean you're out there, you're seeing these these giant nets that go on for I don't know several miles, perhaps.
1: They can be a hundred miles long.
0: Wow. Okay. We
1: pulled we pulled one net from the Southern Ocean from the Toothfish campaign. One net from one ship. It was 72 kilometers long and weighed 70 tons.
0: Wow. And your ship's able to actually carry that.
1: Oh, we have uh, three large ships. And uh, what happened yeah. is we went after the Toothfish fleet with two ships. And as soon as we found the Toothfish poaching vessel, the, the thunder, it began to run. And it dropped its nets. It just abandoned its net to run. And then our other vessel, the Sam Simon, came in and picked it up. It took us 200 hours to pull that net out of the ocean. And, uh, and uh, the number of fish that were in there that were just in to- wildlife that are destroyed was just uh, mind-boggling. And now they're extremely destructive. Mm-hmm. And the other problem we have is ghost nets. And that is that thousands of miles of nets lost every year. that are just drift in the ocean, killing, killing, killing. You know, And the dead fish attract more fish, which then kill more fish. So they're just traps that, like magnets that pull in the fish and destroy them. And, uh, and another problem we have in the fishing industry is bycatch. So, you, know, you go out to catch this one particular species. For instance, with shrimp, for every kilo of shrimp that is brought in, 20 kilos of everything else dies.
0: Wow. Now that's huge. That's huge because I know a lot of people kind of see don't really see shrimp as as like a big deal. You know, they're bottom feeders, so uh so what could be the harm in, you know, catching shrimp? I know when I was a kid growing up, my dad used to take us down to Indian River and he'd throw out a net and pull in some shrimp. And so for the longest time during my vegan journey, my mind kept going back to that like, oh, shrimp can't be that bad. You know, I don't feel an emotional connection to them. So, sure, it's a smaller creature that I could probably justify eating. But, but what you just said right there, just that really, really helps, you know, other people that are maybe in that mindset that are having a hard time coming around to, you know, finding, you know, little ways to justify why they're picking and choosing from the animal kingdom what, sh- what can be eaten and what shouldn't.
1: Well, look at it this way. If you eat shrimp, then you're eating sea turtles because of the sea turtles that die in those, uh, in those nets. They throw so much away. And here's the other thing, the laws are so ridiculous that if somebody goes out, okay, you're allowed to catch halibut. Here's your quota on halibut, not anything else. So every other fish in that net, whether it be cod or pollock or haddock or whatever, they throw it overboard. They're dead, they throw it overboard. They're not allowed to come back with that fish on board Mm. because their quota was for halibut. It's just ridiculous regulations on that. But uh, that's the way it is. And then, that, and of course, the government said, well, that's conservation. We're, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. It's real lunacy you know, when, you, when, when you think about it. The problem is there's simply no longer enough fish in the ocean to continue to feed the ever-growing populations of human beings. You know, for instance, cat, cats. We feed 1.7 million tons of fish to cats every year. So cats in uh, the world eat more fish than all the seals in the North Atlantic Ocean. And yet we say, oh, the seals are eating all our fish. <laughs> I guess if the wow. seals had to pay wow. for the fish, we uh, industry would probably be more respectful of them.
0: So anytime that uh, we identify a problem, right, we, we always want to figure out what the solution is. So in that example, say for the cats, What could be a potential solution to that? You know, so many people have cats. They got to feed their cats. You know, is there a solution or is this just one of those things where it's just like we can only do what we can do?
1: Well, personally, you know, I think that I don't think human beings have the responsibility to even own pets myself because of of this. uh, You know, millions of them are just killed every year. But um, we feed tuna to cats. I mean, if a tuna ever met a cat, the tuna would eat the cat. So it's not a natural food. So we just got to stop we just have to stop doing
0: that. Understood. Let's talk a little bit about your, your fleet of ships that are out there on the front lines. How many ships do you have? Um, and I know that they're positioned uniquely all around the world. What does that look like? What does it look like, say, if somebody were to want to volunteer, they really wanted to be of service to this cause and this mission that you have started? What does that look like for them?
1: Well, we have ships right now on the east coast and west coast of Africa, in the Mediterranean, in the Caribbean, west coast of Canada, in Maine, in the Sea of Cortez. And uh, people can join. Uh, they can go to our website. There's crew applications there and uh, can volunteer. We look for people both with experience and people who don't have experience. So they don't have experience and we can train them. And uh, But what we're really looking for is passion because I've always felt that uh, what changes the world is uh, the three virtues of passion, courage and imagination. And so this is what we're trying, trying to um, to recruit. You know, uh, people say, uh, you know, your crew are not professional. Yes. And I don't want professionals because you can't pay professionals to do it, what these uh, volunteers do for nothing. And, uh, you know, it's the passion that we're looking for. So, uh, like right now, I think there's about 200 people all working on the ships, and that's constantly changing and rotating. We've had thousands and thousands of volunteers uh, come through and on the ships and uh, on different campaigns. They're not all ship campaigns. We have pe- people on the beaches protecting turtles, for example, and also undercover operations where we go in and get information.
0: Well, that's really great. For any of your volunteers that actually hear this recording, I know that my heart goes out to each and every one of them for the sacrifice and for the work that they're doing. So thank you to you and all of your amazing crew members and volunteers. On that note, then um, as we begin to wrap up, tell people where they can find more about you if they want to go deeper with you and with the Sea Shepherd mission and perhaps join your mission as a volunteer. Where can they find that information?
1: Well, we actually have over a hundred Facebook pages of the different campaigns and everything, but it's our website is uh, sea dot uh, org. Just look C Shepherd on Facebook. Uh, we're on Instagram. We're on all these things, so that we're pretty easy to find. And uh, on the uh, website, it has places where people can uh, can volunteer. We have chapters all over the world. I think sixteen chapters in North America, nineteen in France, sixteen in Australia. And that all over. And uh, so we, we look for people who want to volunteer on land as well as on ships too as shore supporters, you know, because every Navy needs its shore supporters. <laughs> and so there's, always, there's room for anybody who wants to get involved to get involved and uh, to become a part of what we call Neptune's Navy.
0: Nice. Excellent. Now, are there any uh, parting words of wisdom or some final thoughts before we say goodbye?
1: You know, the one thing that I always say over and over again is that people have to understand that if the ocean dies, we all die. So therefore, Protecting the ocean is in the interest of every single one of us, no matter where we live. And also to get an understanding of what is the ocean. People look at the ocean as the sea, but the ocean is us. We are the ocean. Reason being is that this is a planet with water in continual circulation. Sometimes it's in the sea. Sometimes it's in the atmosphere, in the clouds. Sometimes it's in ice. Sometimes it's underground. And it's in the cells of every living plant and animal on the planet constantly in circulation so the water in your body right now was once in ice once underground once in the sea Um, and since it's been around for literally hundreds of million years the glass of water you drink was probably pissed by a dinosaur at one point so uh you know this is what this planet is the water planet uh, the, the the planet ocean so to speak and what it is is us we are all connected by that one element from every plant from every animal from every microbe from Everything is all connected because we're part of that circulatory system of this planet when the water flows through each and every one of us.
0: Wow, that is fantastic. It's very moving. And I just thank you so much for joining us on the show and for imparting your wisdom, your experience, all of your knowledge. And thank you so much for being pirates of compassion. Um, As here at Eating Like You Give a Damn, we are rebels for compassion. So we are... uh, definitely a part of that mission so thank you so much for joining us captain paul
1: okay thank you very much been
0: a pleasure and we'll go ahead and say goodbye that was captain paul watson founder and president of the sea shepherd conservation society to learn more about sea shepherd and how you can take action to help our oceans marine animals and our ecosystem whether on land or at sea visit SeaShepherd.org. that's s-e-a shepherd.org. You can also search on Facebook for Sea Shepherd to locate your nearest chapter, and follow them on Instagram and Twitter at Sea Shepherd SSCS, which stands for Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. And if you get the opportunity to meet Captain Paul, be sure to tell him you heard him here on the Eating Like You Give a Damn podcast. Don't forget to join our community of rebels in the Eating Like You Give a Damn Facebook group for vegan friendly recipes and support. Request to join us at com forward slash group. If you want podcast updates so you can see what's coming up and to see what I like to eat, follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Damn. That's all for today. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like what you just heard, leave a glowing review and share this show with your friends so that together we can help more people make more informed decisions. New episodes release on Mondays. And until next time, veg on, rebels.